0: Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett. In this series, we want to demystify the worlds of finance and investment. We're going to be speaking with industry experts, strategists, fund managers, and financial planners. We'll hear from investment professionals who are at the top of their game, but also entrepreneurs who need investment, technology specialists disrupting the world of investment, and good old fashioned, active allocators of capital. Who is leading the charge? Who is disrupting? Who is being disrupted? How does the frenetic political and economic backdrop feed into the investment process and really understand why we invest in the first place? About halfway through lockdown this year, a consensus started to emerge that questioned the future of physical offices, particularly expensive ones and particularly busy ones like those in central London. Why would we all suffer long commutes when we can all work from home? Well, my guest this week proposes the counter-argument to this, and he does it brilliantly. His name is Tyler Goodwin. He is the CEO and founder of Seaforth Land, which is a commercial real estate specialist based in London. In our conversation, we discuss his background, his formative years during the Asian Asian financial crisis. Uh, We discuss what Seaforth Land does. Uh, And he introduces a new concept to me, which is creative core real estate, um, which actually I think is a really exciting asset class. So without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. Tyler Goodwin, welcome to the podcast. Thank we're you. going to start with your background, if we can. Where did you start your career? Uh, well, I'm
1: originally from Vancouver, Canada, uh, and I started in the commercial real estate business at a firm called CB Commercial or Coldwell Banker Commercial, uh, the precursor to CB Richard Ellis. Uh, and that's where I did my, my early training before moving off to uh, Asia after uh, four years in Vancouver, then I moved to Indonesia.
0: Okay. And so how long were you in Indonesia and what were you doing now?
1: I was in Indonesia for seven years. I uh, did property development, uh, working for one of the larger families, the Salim family, uh, doing a range of different development projects.
0: I see. And then after Indonesia, and after sorry, after your time in London, what, uh, in Asia, what brought you back back to um, the West?
1: Well, Indonesia. Um, so those years were interesting times. I arrived in '92 and left in 1999, um, and so we, I experienced the Asia financial crisis.
0: Yeah, you got it. You were front, I was uh, front, front row, front row seats.
1: Yeah, it was uh, it was an extraordinary experience, uh, and so we saw, you know, the burning buildings and the rioting and and all of the terrible things that happened during that that period. Um, And uh, so I, um, during that time, I also uh, experienced what at that point we call them vulture funds. Um, And it was the first introduction as a young real estate professional to the fact that real estate can be counter cyclical, Uh, that, you know, prior to that, I was always told, look, you'll make money in good years and there'll be lean years. Uh, And then in the middle of the crisis, we had vulture funds, real estate, private equity funds flying in meeting with us and saying, so what do you have? What are you interested in selling? And um, so for me, that that sounded really appealing. Um, and uh, so I, I went back to school. I got my master's degree at University of Southern California in real estate. Uh, and then, uh, you know, for the sole purpose of getting into real estate private equity, uh, which I did, I joined Deutsche Bank's uh, real estate private equity group in New York City, um, spent almost a year there. Um, and they moved me back out to Asia, which is what I wanted. I mean, I was keen to get back to Asia, especially as a Canadian working in the U.S. The tax rate's much higher. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah. So, we... so
0: that was a fairly, it must have been a, an educational experience being sort of front and center of the Asia financial crisis. Um, can you, um, uh, where were you for the um, global financial crisis in 2008?
1: Right. So, um You know, at that point, we were back in Hong Kong um, working. I was working for J.P. Morgan in the equivalent of a real estate private equity group. It was called Real Estate Special Situations. Um, And uh, yeah, so also, you know, obviously, those were formative years. Uh, I'd say the Asia financial crisis was... Certainly, more extreme being in Asia than the global financial crisis. Why is that? Well, uh, I mean, it, it, the binary outcome when a when a country completely shuts down and when you see a currency collapse, um, you know, our exchange rate was twenty five hundred rupee to the dollar, and it went to up to eighteen thousand rupee to the dollar, Scary. and the, the inflation that followed. Um, but there were also, I mean, there were some great lessons in that in terms of how you how you manage your development. Uh, Making sure that you've got the right capital structure and the right joint venture partners. We had joint venture partners with Japanese, with Nisho UI Corporation and Toyo Real Estate, who were great partners, great long-term partners with you know, vision for the projects that we were developing. Um, and so, you know, when you get stress tested like that at a young age, I think it really influences how you underwrite transactions. So in the, uh, in the global financial crisis, you know, we already saw that things were quite heady in 2007. Um, so we were doing a lot of structured equity, so preferred equity positions where, you know, our joint venture partner would have been making, you know, a sizable amount of money for us to hit it's our 20% return. Structured returns.
0: equity is somewhere between debt and
1: equity. Uh, yes, exactly. So the idea being that... Uh, you know, they get extraordinarily rewarded for their gains. And we sit in a more, you know, first, we get the first benefits of the cash flows, but cap our, cap our upside, but also limit our downside. So we did a lot more of that going into the global financial crisis.
0: So changing Tang, you are the chief executive of Seaforth Land um, here in the UK. What is Seaforth Land?
1: Seaforth Land is a real estate operating partner. We're focused exclusively on central London commercial property. So office buildings, and really with a strong bias towards creative buildings. So we manage institutional capital, investing in and developing commercial property. Um,
0: can you define creative, creative buildings and creative core real estate?
1: Yeah. Uh, so, so when we started this business, uh, you know, we we had a vision for, and, and there's very clear evidence for the bifurcation of the office market into what I would argue are commoditized office stock. So big glass steel you know American. concrete yeah like you know commodity stock that's serving a big back office function or is otherwise easily you know competed with with next year's new stock and then creative buildings which doesn't mean you're you're appealing to creative industries necessarily but buildings that are experiential buildings that for the right tenants Think uh, Google and their headquarters up at King's Cross that they're designing right now, or, and building right now. Or, or think um, you know, a great example is the Post Building, an adaptive reuse of a of a post sorting facility that was done by Brockton and Oxford Properties. Um, you know, they're really interesting special buildings that attract companies like McKinsey and and other organizations that value commercial real estate for more than just its commodity service of just occupying space, right? It's it's more about giving employees this experience where they enjoy coming to work, where the office space is used to attract and retain talent, where customers, when they arrive, they kind of have a smile on their face, like, okay, I get it. It's, it's like coming to your building here. I mean, I really think that Waverton has a beautiful building and, and it, it says private bank, it says it says Merchant Bank in a in this beautiful lane, you know, facing uh, facing German Street. You know, that's experiential.
0: What do you think, therefore, is the secret sauce? Is it about really understanding your tenants and their, what their requirements are, or is it about finding the right architects and getting that sort of creative um, input right? Where do you think the sort of balance of your value
1: the the, the business is built around? customer demand uh, so it has to start with understanding the consumer uh, understanding what the tenant wants and then you choose the right consultant team and architect to design for that submarket. so for instance we're building a building in, in Farringdon right now and we're using a cutting-edge architect and really beautiful uh, architecture it's on Bleeding Heart Yard we're wrapping this 1970s building that isn't particularly attractive in this perforated patinated brass facade uh, metal facade that sits on the outside that looks like a victorian period or an Edwardian period building from a distance but as you get closer it's actually a contemporary interpretation of a historic building Um, it's the sort of thing that um you know i've never seen before this architect had this idea and we've supported it and we're building it and um so but that works in that submarket. There's that historic Clarkenwell area. Bleeding Heart Yard is an old Victorian, Victorian period yard. And so it naturally fit. And that, you know, comes obviously with when you go into Camden, in this case it sits in Camden, you want to make sure you're designing something that, that really adds to the 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 building fabric of the area. It doesn't detract from or, or hurt. The Presumably, the planners are on site, Yeah, I mean, they're they right it. behind you. Yes. you know,
0: this kind of re- regeneration. Um, let's talk about, um, you know, a cap rates and, and and yields. Um, from perhaps you could start with creative core, yes, um, and then compare it to the sort of more commoditized end and then maybe even industrial.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um you know we're right now we're 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 in the middle obviously of covid-19 we're near the tail end i would argue but certainly we're we're starting to adapt to this new world and and i think we're approaching a period of normalization that may take 12 18 24 months but
0: as we'll come back to the office
1: exactly um the the impact of covid-19 on the debt markets and and most most specifically on the uh, on the risk free rate, uh, guilt. Um, You know we benchmark in in real estate terms. We look at the risk free rate as a ten year gilt, right? And and obviously, the England uh, the central bank has just recently in May had their first negative interest rate auction, first time in three hundred and twenty six years. Um, you know my understanding is from a client actually this week. Uh, they just recently hedged a five-year interest rate exposure that was effectively pricing gilts at negative as well. So, you know, the government, the central bank is is saying saying very clearly that interest rates are going to be low for longer. Um, and, uh, and that has a, a fairly profound impact on institutional real estate and, you know, as you asked, cap rates. Cap rates are... It's another word for yield on investment so if I want to buy a building like if you were to buy a bond and get a a three percent yield if you buy a building you might get a four and a half percent yield to simplify it a yield is a net operating income uh, or EBITDA yield Uh, it's the same as looking if you look at it the other way if you were to buy a building and get a 20 price earnings multiple, that would be the same as buying a building that's delivering a 5% income yield. Yeah, right. so, so what's happening is right now yields are compressing because the risk-free rate is has declined. The 10-year rate is now 0.38%. Um, if you look at cap rates over the last five years, granted all of that has been you know, impacted by the referendum and then obviously the Brexit outcome, um, that spread has been 2.9%. Um, so arguably, so
0: the, between- the spread
1: over the risk-free rate is mm-hmm. 2.9%. So arguably, yields on buildings today for a core building should be 3.2, 3.3. But actually, you know, you can still buy a building at four four and a quarter percent. So spreads have widened. Uh, markets inefficient. Uh, real estate market is illiquid. And it takes a while for the market to adjust. Um, I'm confident spreads are going to compress. And, you know, that...
0: On the basis that there's, the, a, there's, a, um, there's a weight of money waiting to be allocated to the real estate sector.
1: So that's the next component. So one is just there's already a wall of capital, uh, institutional investors, uh, allocation of real assets across institutions. Like And I, when I say institutions, I mean insurance companies. Pension funds, endowments, and foundations, sovereign wealth funds, etc. Their average allocation is over ten percent, but you know they're underallocated. So they're actually their target allocations are over ten, but their actual allocations are less than less than ten. And so there's I think seventy to hundred basis points lag, depending on what institution you are um, in your target versus your actual. So they're already trying to ca- trying to catch up to their allocations, and now. The fixed income environment you know we're, we're negative real interest rates and the governments are telling us we're targeting higher inflation and so your cash is going to be worth less if you sit on cash uh so that's pushing institutions out of their fixed income exposure and looking for tips like insurance protected securities or or real assets because of their hedge against inflation um
0: do you and, think that uh, that that people um Uh, underpricing credit risk in that process.
1: Yeah. So right now, the credit markets are also dislocated. Uh, Now, for core buildings, and I should explain what a core building is, uh, you know, core real estate is buildings. If you think about office buildings that are owned by pension funds that have long term reliable cash flows and passive Management, so you're not redeveloping it. You don't need to retenant it. You're just managing the building and collecting quarterly rents. Um, you know that those core buildings that that investment represents about 55% of total institutional allocation. And so, the the importance for looking at core first is everything benchmarks to core. Um, core investors in North America, their allocation, their debt, I should say, on that. Core real estate is 20%. It's very low. Uh, So, actually, there's a less reliance for a lot of institutional investors. There's less reliance on debt than there might be in value add or further out the risk return spectrum. So, as you invest in core and then you go core plus, slightly higher risk, slightly higher return, then value add, then opportunistic, where, you know, or development, where people are taking a lot more risk. Uh, Normally, they apply more leverage to that. It might be between 50 and 60% leverage instead of 20%. So, to your question with regards to the difference between uh, core commodity and core creative buildings, um, there's not a big difference today uh, because I believe that's fundamentally, I think many investors are still trying to digest what is the new definition of core. And it's not that the definition has changed, it's that underwriting standards for core investors have changed. They've tightened. Uh, they've gone back to where they should be, which is core is a passive asset class that's buying into, you know, reliable long-term cash flows. You know, the the, the days of buying a, a we work occupied building with no covenant and calling that a core building, I think, are gone, mm-hmm. right? Unless you get a covenant you know, just because they're paying rent on a month-to-month basis doesn't mean, in my mind, that doesn't qualify as core. And I think a lot of institutional investors may have over, you know, overlooked that. Um, and uh, you could argue the retail sector. Some of these retail buildings should never have been sitting in core funds, but core managers were buying it because it was juicing their overall returns. And that's part of the challenge here is, you know, there, there are a lot of core funds out there where institutional investors have been it's referred to as buying beta mm-hmm. right and so let's
0: just draw a distinction between buying beta and, and, and great uh,
1: absolutely so that you know beta is overall how the market performs so if a pool of core buildings is delivering a total return of eight percent of which six percent is income you might say The Odyssey Index, which is a a core open-ended fund uh, index, they have one in Europe and one in the U.S., that's beta. So managers will target that beta. They might target IPE's beta, right, Uh, and try to convince investors to put money into that. Um, But today, you know, when you've got a large fund, like there's a large fund in the U.S., um, I won't mention the name, but a total equity value of $23 billion Uh, And they right now have a queue of redemptions, investors trying to get out of that fund of $7 billion. Um, And the reason that's the case, I believe, is because investors have lost confidence in both the manager, but also what their definition of core is. They're like, those buildings, a bunch of those buildings aren't core. I'm getting out. You're underperforming and you're underperforming because those assets aren't as core as I thought they were. Um, And the challenge today is that, you know, it's tough to buy beta, it's more about alpha, which is more active stock selection, right? It's active management, but actually it's, it's more, I would call the opportunity today is for the right investors, more tactical core. You've got to cherry pick your assets and build up a portfolio in this post COVID world.
0: Why do you think the sweet spot is perhaps on, on sort of project value? Uh,
1: in terms of where values can go,
0: uh, in terms of where where
1: the opportunity, where the
0: opportunity is. is, perhaps it then stay in London?
1: Well, uh, so the there are so many different investors in real estate that it really does come down to what an investor is looking for. Some investors want risk, right? I would say for those investors that want risk, they should be building creative buildings or doing value add to creative buildings. That's what we do, right? And, you know, when I set up Fourth Land, I've got a lot of experience in multi-asset classes. I decided on this strategy and only this strategy because, you know, I believe, one, you have to specialize, but two, the best risk adjusted returns are in this space. So, you know, I'm putting my money where my mouth is, uh, so to speak, and it's, it's you know, paying off well for us. I think the, but but some investors just want income, right? And and so for those, they should be buying income. They should be buying it now while well, you can buy it at four or four and a quarter because, you know, I believe that cap rates are going to compress uh, and, you know, the yields, if they're compressing, you know, while you should be expecting in a core investment capital appreciation to represent maybe, you know, a quarter or 20% of your total return. Um, and you should be only targeting in, in core returns any 8% total return. So not a lot of capital appreciation. I think tactical core investing today, if you're buying right, You could be rewarded with 25, 30, 40% gains. And for the reason that, you know, imagine you being able to buy a stock that trades today at a 25 multiple. And you could say, well, there's price dislocation in that and it should trade at a 33 multiple. That's a pretty good stock to buy if it's giving you already, you know, four to 6% current income on your investments. So you're like, okay, so I get a four to 6% dividend yield and I think this stock is going to appreciate, you know, that that would be a pretty straightforward yeah, bet. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Can we switch tags uh, or change tag and, and talk about the supply and demand dynamics um, within commercial real estate in London? Yes. And, you know, we read a lot about this sort of um, shift between um, you know, one hundred percent or one hundred percent of um, offices being um, occupied, to a sort of more balanced, flexible approach to working and people working from home and out of the offices. Yes. How does that, or how will that affect the supply and demand dynamics at your creative core level?
1: Well, I mean, it's uh, it's having a profound effect. It's it's unclear what the ultimate effect is. Um, we, we track this, uh, this concept of net stock absorption, which we, we gauge as the best we view it. And it's the kind of global gold standard in the health of the market. And what net stock absorption is, is total lettings, which here they call take up, mm-hmm. right? Less all of the space given back to the market. So, you know, tenants releasing space for putting it back out in the market. Post-Brexit, take up was quite high. So you heard a lot of people writing about the market's back and take up is positive. But actually for the 12 months following Brexit, it was about 3.3 million square feet in negative net stock absorption, meaning there was 3.3 million square feet of more stock given back than let. And and so that's that tells you, you know, what we saw which was actually even though market was saying that it's strong actually vacancy rates were rising and buildings uh across the market rents were falling now because we track net stock absorption central london wise but we also track it sub-market by sub-market what we identified during brexit was that actually midtown had positive net stock absorption. It was the strongest submarket in Central London, so that's why we were buying Midtown, and rents were actually rising.
0: So the demand is outstripping supply.
1: That's right. And uh, so, so while we have to be really careful when we look at the entire market, that we look at it submarket by submarket. And the reason I raise that point is right now, you know, we believe that there is negative net stock absorption. It's happening. Uh, it is slow. It takes time because businesses are also trying to figure out what is the density that they're planning to occupy in this new post-COVID world, given social distancing. Like in our office, we had to build a, you know, our own private shower and locker room for employees because of the, the communal facilities didn't quite fit. That means taking more space back to, to occupy for facilities as opposed to desks. It means you can, can't put as many people in the office. Um, you know, I think I think businesses are still trying to digest that. And it also depends on like the work from home phenomena. I think it makes a lot of sense for back office workers, right? If if they're working well, if they're being productive, then why not work from home? Uh, I think the challenge comes for the younger generation of back office workers. How are they learning? What's their, you know, what's the culture that they're trying to create in an organization and knowledge transfer and inspiring and, and building and attracting and retaining and uh, you know the new talent and i think the front office you so can the
0: answer there what how do, how does one rec- recreate that old, uh, osmosis uh working from home do you think that they have to come into the office I,
1: that's I, period? I i believe for 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 talent development there's just you know we are as a civilization we're talking about millennia mm-hmm. of you know what what the, the whole benefits of Central business districts are agglomeration. It's bringing people together to to exchange ideas and 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 build. And and you know we've been faced with many pandemics over the centuries. And you know the, you know I was in Hong Kong during SARS, right? And you know of course just like after the global financial crisis, we're not, everybody's going to move out of office towers, right? All of these extreme views that come immediately following a crisis they eventually get back to normal, normative behavior and what, what do we need as human beings? And I know for one, we're all back in the office and the energy level is so awesome. Like people are really sincerely happy to be back and the young people are like, you know, there's kind of a bounce in their step.
0: Well then, I, I suppose you touched on it, but those big tower blocks. I mean, presumably they have a balance of being a bit like a, a sort of factory-based um, uh, production line and also the difficulty of trying to get people up to those the various levels safely so Ver- what's the, what does the future hold for them
1: so vertical transportation is critical right now uh in terms of solution in fact we've got one building that's 17 stories um and we've had to. Uh, you know we're in the middle of uh well, we're in stage four design development so we've been able to adapt to the COVID-19 world, we're more than doubling our parking, our bike parking allocation. We're getting rid of car allocation. There's, we're expanding our, our showers, our lockers, um, but we've also created this one-way stair system, and we're we're currently engaging with Fitwell, which is a kind of fitness assessment of buildings and a scoring of buildings to to. Really encourage more people using the stairs. It takes congestion out of the lift. So if you're on the second or third or fourth floor, in an in an old world, you just got into the lift, right? In the new world, you design your buildings and you flow so that it's a one-way system and people are using these stairs. And so you spend more on things like it's that. A good outcome. It's a great That's- outcome. It's actually, you know, we're we're right now we're we we're looking at environmental signage where we're gonna change the environmental signage in the stairwells. Every week, and so you know the, the tenants come in there, and there's a new message, right? So you can actually change it, and it might be an inspiring message, or it might be, might be, did you know, you know, by walking up to the fourth floor every day, you you know, you're burning a thousand calories a week more, right? Go have a burger, right? Things like that. You know, you can make it interesting and engaging. Um, you know, I think we we're all going to need to adapt our behavior in this post COVID nineteen world, but. But I don't think we should overreact to this phenomena because, again, I do think that there will be a normalization, and you need to make sure that you're coming up with solutions. Like in our lifts, one of the things we're looking at is when there's nobody in the lifts, these ultraviolet, you know, um, lights turn on and kill all the any of the viruses, mm-hmm. right? So there's all sorts of things you uh, can do, cool. yeah, using technology, but not not going overkill. Mm-hmm.
0: Going back to, I suppose, uh, uh, on turning turning to a sort of more financial uh, topic, how do you manage liquidity and funds coming in and out of your?
1: You know, it's a great uh, it's a great question. Um, there's been so much evolution in how institutions look at the need for liquidity in commercial real estate. Historically, they've looked at it as a it's an illiquid asset class and we don't want that we don't want too much illiquidity. but I think now they're looking at their overall allocations and if you think about equities and the liquid nature of most equities uh, as well as fixed income and the liquid nature of fixed income most of the time most of the
0: time Yes exactly of in.
1: course absolutely yeah, but, but then when you look at real assets, what are you really trying to get? Are you looking for liquidity and you're investing in real assets? You probably shouldn't be because it's in a liquid asset class. What you should be looking at is the other characteristics that it gives you. Over time, real estate gives you a hedge against inflation, right? So, but But it doesn't-
0: Long-term cash flows.
1: Yes. Well, it's it's not just that. It's actually the long-term cash flows, depending how the leases are structured, should have an RPI or a CPI hedge in there you know, no less than X sort of uplift. But then also um, because real estate is a physical asset class, the construction of real estate is is subject to inflation, right? If you want to build a building in five years time, inflation is going to make it more expensive to, you know, cost it out, to buy the materials, to hire the, the workers to get that work done. And so there's the, the natural physical asset replacement cost that is constantly rising. And you know with the rising cost of capital and you know the rising, I should say, the rising expectations of return, people start looking at real assets and it drives up prices as well. As we see yield compression in a building and people pay more for that building, then there's this thing called the, the 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 replacement cost of the asset. Actually, the underlying land gets to become more valuable as well. So so you have that benefit long term, not over the short term, but long term uh, with the the hedge of inflation and in real assets. Yeah, I see.
0: Yeah, and turning, I suppose, to um the COVID, turning back to the COVID crisis, and and thinking about, um, you know, as the the government schemes uh, roll off, the rent support rolls back. Yes. What what do you think? What's the outcome? Are we going to see a, a, a further bifurcation? Are the are the winners just going to be able to continue winning, and, and the smaller guys, leave um, uh, the market?
1: I think this is probably one of the greatest tragedies of, of COVID nineteen, and really. You know the government policies relating to COVID 19 is is how you know i run a boutique investment management business i'm i still consider myself an entrepreneur and you know it takes a lot to build a business and you know to, you know we have three years we've we've been i'm very conservative because of those Years in Asia financial crisis and global financial crisis, yeah. Um, So you know we've got three years of runway in our business. We're always thinking, okay, if if things go to hell in a handbasket, are we safe? Right? And and so we haven't furloughed people because we've been fortunate to, you know, we've got a great team and they work really hard. And you know, I don't want to furlough. This is an opportunity to grow our business. We're we're actually hiring people. We're not we're not furloughing. But if you're in the retail sector your demand has disappeared. And if you're a small business person in the retail sector, you probably never plan for six months of zero income.
0: High fixed costs as well. Yes.
1: Uh, so I think it's absolutely tragic. And, you know, without a doubt, the un- unemployment rate is going to spike. And, you know, we're, we are in a global recession. We're clearly in a recession here. That recession, I think, starts to compound when the true levels of unemployment bite and there is that negative spiral that happens as these unemployed people consume less that drives down the consumption and production of goods and services by business. And, you know, people start hoarding cash there. They start just saving because God, you know, you hear about Frank. He's lost his job. This is terrible. Maybe I should start saving some more of my money, spend less.
0: And, uh, big deflationary tools. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And, and, uh, but also, you know, to your point, I, there's going to be a lot of vacant retail space, and small businesses are are going to go bankrupt. I was encouraged to see that the uh, the government just uh, extended the um, the forfeiture uh, regulations. So you know that that's helping businesses they still need to restructure their 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 lease obligations with the landlords and i guess i'm a little bit i am canadian Uh, i know i sound american and so you know i'm I'm always thinking about the little guy and i do have uh, you know liberal views on this but there is the reality that you know it's not like i can go to my bank and say hey you know I'd like a, a holiday from paying my interest expense, or, you know, for commercial buildings. That, that's not a conversation our banks want to have, and so you know we have to balance that out with, you know, the commercial needs of the building. Fortunately, uh, you know, the government has uh, come in with some new policies with regards to uh, the 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 use class allocation, which gives some flexibility on some of that retail space. Unless instead of it just being dead space. You know, you could put an office in the space, right? And uh, or you can you can have a wider range of retail or, or, or uses uh, as opposed to just strictly an A3 unit. Um, so that'll help um, with the, the the community and the building fabric, and hopefully encourage new businesses to come in. There's also this you know a rise of participation rents where landlords are saying okay i'll give you an abatement or i'll give you a reduced base rate but then i'd like a percentage of your turnover right and so that's something that's uh, that's you know prevalent already in north america but less common here so that's yes, developing makes sense.
0: You can see.
1: yeah um but but these are that
0: operating leverage but huge operating leverage which i suppose these mm-hmm. retailers have to put up with yeah
1: yes um so, so I think the retail sector, we don't do much in the retail space. Uh, we, you know, we, we do have components, small components of retail, but it's always more of a, an amenity for the building, like a coffee shop for an office building, or, you know, as opposed to uh, something like a retail mall. We don't do anything like that.
0: Very interesting. Tyler, final question. What advice would you give um, to perhaps some of our younger audience who are trying to get into the commercial real estate industry?
1: Yeah, I spend a lot of time with uh, so I mentee a lot of kids. Um, you know, every year I get I'm involved in the Urban Land Institute and and I'm a mentor to um, to four kids a year with them. Um, we're also quite active in Access Aspiration, which is the Mayor's Fund for London program that that helps a uh, BAME and inner city youth um, you know get a leg up, and uh, we've really enjoyed that. Uh, I think find an organization that that wants to uh, wants to help if you already have real estate expertise a massive advantage find a mentor right go out and seek one out and you know (laughs) maybe but you know the funny thing is is that you know people you know there's a difference between you know okay i'd like you to be my mentor uh and then the actual follow-up you find actually isn't that good. There's very few people that actually think about their mentor uh, and have sincere follow-up and, and show the sort of effort because it really is a two-way street. And and then it's not an investment, really. It's a paying it forward, and it's so rewarding. I mean, when, when you have uh, a mentee, grow in their industry and you hear how they're growing at their job and and, you know they call and say you know that advice you gave that was really great that's that's reward enough i had it in fact if you look at our board of advisors you know, I think about Stephen Wong, who's a, you know, he's a partner in our business now. He started on the board of advisors, or Kurt Roloffs, who was my boss at Deutsche Bank. He was the global CIO in in the in DB Reef. And, and you know, he's a, he's our founding chairman and, you know, it started as mentorship and people that I just really valued. You know, Ralph Parks, Young Hacks, Susan Freeman. These are all people that, you know, when I asked them to be on our board of advisors, there wasn't any money in it. It was like, you know, they've been a great source of advice. And I said, you know, I'm starting this business and I'd love you to be on our board of advisors and, you know, help guide me. Um, and I think they've, you know, they've since, you know, they're, they're definitely, um, they you know, I've rewarded them some some shares in the business, but more importantly, I think they just see what we're doing and how we're doing it and they find that rewarding. Um, I'd hope that's, you know, a big reason. And I think for, for the young generation, Go out and find a mentor. Um, and also make sure you're balancing your expertise between qualitative skills and quantitative skills because real estate as an asset class is 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 an institutional asset, asset class first. And if you don't have good quantitative skills, if you don't have modeling skills as a young person, like financial modeling skills, you really need it. If you don't eventually... Somebody younger and smarter that's put in the effort on those modeling skills is going to take your job. So invest early. Yeah.
0: Tyler Goodwin, thanks for joining us.
1: Great. Thank you very much, Doug.
0: Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, and our guest this week, Tyler Goodwin. For more information on Seaforth Land, head to their website at seaforthland.com. And if you've enjoyed the show today, why not like it or subscribe? and tell your friends.